Now turning with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 for our New Testament reading. I will read an extended section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 uh, for a particular reason. Uh, our sermon text this morning, of course, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul begins to speak of the resurrection of the dead, but in, some, in one sense, he's actually building off a prior teaching he has already given to the church in Corinth. So I think it would be wise for us uh, to remind ourselves of those things uh, of which Paul has already spoken to this same congregation. Well, we'll read verses 35 through Um, only uh, through verses 45. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come in? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but it's just a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body, for not all flesh is the same, but there are one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. And skipping down to the end, towards verse 56, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, as he has triumphed over sin and death. Now turning with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for our sermon text this morning. We give our attention now to the first five verses of chapter 5. Broader context, actually, let's back up a few to to the end of chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. You see there in that passage, Paul speaks of the inner work, that moral work of renovation that the Spirit works in our hearts. And now, as we begin chapter 5, he speaks of... uh, the end completion, the outer work that still yet, uh, uh, yet remains. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we, we may not be found naked. 
For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. And so we are always of good courage. This is God's holy word. Let us go before him in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we do ask uh, that you would open our minds and our eyes to understand what your word teaches concerning the great promise of the resurrection of the dead, a promise that was secured through Christ's own resurrection. Bless us, we pray. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I love the idea of camping. Um, more so than the reality of it. Uh, back when I uh, was in the Presbytery of the Midwest, I served on the Christian Education Committee, and one of our tasks was to oversee an annual family camp where we had all the other churches uh, in the Presbytery uh, gathered together for a week once a year in the backwoods of Wisconsin for a time uh, of, of s'mores and fellowship, of food uh, and laughter, and a time of study uh, in the Word. And every July, these families came from all over, from the state of Illinois, Wisconsin, Missouri, Iowa, and Minnesota. It's a very large uh, presbytery. And of course, uh, one of those things involved was sleeping uh, in tents. And so it was my first year uh, here uh, in that presbytery, and so I decided, well, I guess I need to purchase a tent. So I purchased an easy assembly, one-man pop-up tent, and what should have taken only five minutes to put together took me well over an hour. Uh, to do so, but I finally had it set up, and, and night came, and I'm, you know, uh, uh, during the other 51 weeks a year, if I'm uh, not uh, involved in some type of church activity, you'll usually find me at home with my dog doing one of two things, watching TV or reading a book, uh, two things uh, that you are not able to do uh, in the middle of the woods as soon as the sun goes down. Kind of hard to read at night. So, Night hit, I decided to lay down in my one-man tent, and I stared at the ceiling for the next uh, several hours and thought, oh man, how uh, riveting this is. Uh, I am so glad I do not live uh, in the 19th or 18th century or any time prior to the invention of electricity. Uh, About an hour in, I decided to slightly adjust myself uh, because I had been uh, sleeping on a route, uh, and that's when the whole tent ended up caving in. Like I was trapped in a Nylon burrito, uh, and so I relocated to, to the bed of my uh, to the bed of my pickup truck, exposed to the elements, thinking, "Oh, this will be great sleeping under the stars," which is fine at first until you hear all the critters coming out at night, and you think, "Great, I'm going to fall asleep, and my face is going to get eaten off by a raccoon." Uh, and then about an hour or so later, the rains came, and I was left exposed to the elements, and all I could think was, "There is no place like home." would have made a terrible pioneer. Like I said, I, I love the idea of camping, um, but the reality is, apart from the bonfires and the s'mores, all it really does is make me long for something more permanent, be it a holiday inn or the comfort of my own uh, bed. What we see in our passage this morning is that Paul gives a similar metaphor to help us recalibrate how we view both this present life and the life of the world to come. In chapter 4, Paul has been talking about the distresses of this present life, especially as they press down on the gospel ministry, as we are perpetually 
persecuted and afflicted and, to, and subjected to so much turmoil and strife and even death as well. Well, now in chapter 5, Paul begins to contemplate the glory of the age to come to remind us that this life is not the end. And he does this by considering the nature of our resurrection bodies. So we're going to consider the nature of our resurrection bodies and the great promise of the gospel, even as we recite on such a regular basis with the Apostles' Creed, I believe, in the resurrection from the dead and the life of the world to come. We'll consider three points this morning. First, we'll consider the matter of dwelling in verse 1. And secondly, we'll consider the matter of dress in verses 2 to 4. And finally, the down payment in verse 5. So dwelling, dress, and down payment. Well, you see for four chapters now, Paul has spoken an awful lot about suffering, particularly suffering at the hands of others, suffering unjustly at the hands of others. Wolves in the midst seeking to ruin Paul and his ministry. And you consider the anxiety and the pressure and the fear that's pulsing through Paul's veins. And it raises that question, what if the bad guys win? Paul has been in hot pursuit, or actually he's been on the tail end of a hot pursuit being pursued by people seeking to put him to death. What if he gets caught? What if he gets cast back into prison? What if he gets killed? How can we speak of everlasting life when we look around us and we see that this life is full of so much frailty, subject to disease, subject to death? To answer this, Paul begins using the metaphor of a tent. I don't know how many realtors would make a living off selling tents. Probably not. You go camping in a tent, that's one thing. It's enjoyable, good for you. But to live in a tent, it's a different beast altogether. Tents are easily torn. They are expendable. All it takes is just one storm, and it can blow it all away. And once a tent starts falling apart, everything starts to look downright ratty. You know, once you get that little tear in a tent... It doesn't take much for that terror to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And Paul uses that as a metaphor to speak of our own earthly bodies, how fragile and frail they are. But this is a really, really robust metaphor that Paul uses because that language of tent we also find in the Old Testament reminds us of Israel's own situation in the wilderness, doesn't it? An entire homeless camp, as it were. An entire nation seeking a better home. Think of what it would be like to be an Israelite in the wilderness every day for 40 days. 40 day camping, or 40 day, 40 year camping excursion. Every day having to tear down your tent, head out, set up your tent. Transients, a whole nation, always traveling for the whole course of their lives, never able, being able to set down roots. We find that as Israel's in the wilderness, even the Lord himself lived in a tent, so to speak. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting. God's own home on the go. I remember uh, once I came back from a camping trip with my folks uh, as a kid, we would go to Fort Clinch on a regular basis um, uh, in in North Florida. It's an old Civil War fort. It's one of the only Union-held forts in the South for the whole course of the war. Uh, And we'd go and have a really great time right there on the beach and I remember coming home uh, one weekend, and um, uh, my dad left the, set up the tent in our backyard to have it air out because it had been raining and really muddy. And um, our, our dog, Toby, 
uh, had apparently sniffed uh, the, the raccoons that had gotten near the tent at some point during our camping excursion. And so in the middle of the night, our dog tore the tent to shreds. Uh, my dad was most unhappy, uh, as he would uh, uh, tell anyone. But we still had a place to sleep. We, we weren't left homeless. I could still sleep in the brick house, or the ranch home that we lived in. It was no big deal uh, in one, um, uh, from, from one vantage point. Paul says here, if this tent, that is to say, if our physical body is destroyed, well, we have a building. We have something much more permanent. Now he begins to contrast the difference between the body now and the same body that we have when it is raised in power. And it's a difference in quality. It's the difference between a $30 pop-up tent from Walmart and a house in the Hamptons. And yet what Paul goes to great lengths to say is that it is, as we saw in 1 Corinthians, it's not two different bodies. It's actually the same body, but now raised indestructible. It speaks of a greater glory. Here, the, 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 the distinction that Paul is getting, I think of the difference between an acorn and an oak tree. How many of us would ever look at an acorn, never having seen an oak tree before, and say, aha, I know what this is going to look like in 40 years. I think it would take us all by surprise. And yet, that oak tree comes from the acorn. And that's the very analogy that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 15 regarding the nature of the resurrection body. We're not raised to different bodies. Uh, uh, you know, it's not like you get to um, pick from a catalog uh, on the, the day of the resurrection and say, okay, I would like this body. I would like this type of upgrade. No, so we're, we're raised to the, to the same body, but it is such of a qualitatively uh, greater degree. It's the difference between an acorn shedding the kernel and the oak tree that blossoms from the death. What does our, what does our resurrection body look like? I don't know. Paul says that. We, we don't know the full contours of what these things will be, but we do know it's the same body, and yet it is a body that is raised in power. Think of Christ himself when we read the stories of Christ's resurrection. Here is Christ, a man who still eats, still eats fish. He still eats meat. Good news for the, the marriage supper. I'm hoping it, it won't be a, um, you know, a, just a salad buffet. Um, sorry, that's... But here's, here's, here's Christ who says, look, I can, still be, I can still be touched. Here, touch my hands, feel them. It, it, Christ is not a ghost. And yet at the same time, Christ was able to appear and disappear at will. What is that like? What are our resurrection bodies like? We're given kind of fleeting glimpses. It's like you're in the midst of, you're in a big open field in the midst of a storm and the lightning cracks And in that flash of lightning, you're given a brief glimpse of the landscape before you. That's what we are given in Scripture, these brief brief flashes hinting for us what the great resurrection from the dead will look like. And Paul talks about our resurrection bodies as being the difference from our present bodies is that of an acorn and an oak tree. It's the difference between, to use the language he uses here in chapter 5, a tent and a more permanent building. It's the difference between the tent and the wilderness and Mount Zion itself, where the tabernacle comes to dwell. Paul uses a variety of images here, a building, a house made without hands, that which is eternal in the heavens. Why this tent? Why this temple imagery? 
Well, Paul is now introducing a theme that he will begin teasing out further and further as, as, it, as it increases in this, in this crescendo, uh, even as we make our way into chapter 6, that speaks of the ultimate purposes of God, the preparation of the whole world for the revelation of His glory, that this light momentary affliction prepares us for something weightier, an eternal weight of glory where God Himself will return and transform the new heavens and the new earth, and the whole, the whole vast array of the world will be a theater of God's glory. And the God will come to dwell and inhabit not a building of brick and mortar, but a people, living stones, as His own indestructible temple. And Paul's beginning to tease out the purpose of the resurrection body. A theme he continues for the next several chapters. Now Paul shifts this metaphor ever so slightly in, in verses 2 to 4 uh, as he's no longer speaking of a home, that difference between the tent and a brick building, as it were. And now he begins to speak of clothing. Now Paul also speaks of groaning, of hunger pains, this longing to be further clothed. Uh, going back to, to my uh, excursion in the wilderness in the backwoods of uh, Green Lake, Wisconsin. Um, the tent collapses. Uh, I'm left exposed. Do, am, am, I, am I trapped in the middle of this tent thinking, oh, I can't wait to sit in the back of my, bed, my pickup truck as the rain falls and the raccoons try to devour my face? No, what I'm hoping is for something, something better. I'm hoping to get back uh, into the comforts of my own home. Well, Paul is talking about this here. If this earthly body is a tent, the, the, the ultimate aim, ultimate goal is not to kind of cast off these mortal shackles as if I'm, you know, and, and just be a, a, you know, like Casper the friendly ghost floating about doing whatever I can. Paul says that that is not our ultimate aim, right? When we die, it says our, you know, as we confessed earlier, our souls immediately depart our bodies upon death and are present with the Lord. And that is a great thing. Paul actually will say in verses 6 to 10, it's better to be present with the Lord and absent from the body. But it's still not the best thing. It's the, ne- it's the next transition step, but it's not our final hope. Think of uh, the saints in Revelation chapter 6. The saints who have departed They're standing before the throne of God, and what is it that they're praying? How much longer? How long, O Lord? How can there be peace so long as there is sin and injustice that continues to run rampant? Sins that have not been reckoned with. When will be our vindication? When will will we be raised to bodies indestructible? And we talk about when we, when we die, uh, we pass to heaven, and that is absolutely true. And there is great joy that, 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 that casts everything in this life in its proper light. You know, what we need to recognize is that when, we, when, we, when, our, when our souls depart to heaven, there is still a longing for something greater to happen, for the fulfillment of all the promises of God. You see, when we die, we, we are not immediately resurrected We will all be resurrected at once on the last day. Abraham is still dead and in the grave. David is still dead and in the grave. The disciples are still in the grave, still awaiting the great hope 
of the resurrection from the dead. Though their souls are present with the Lord, and it is a great and joyous thing, there is a longing for the soul and the body to be reunited. A longing, as Paul says here, to be further clothed. To have our bodies raised in a way more substantial. I think so many of us are... uh, 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 influenced by you know pop culture and, and things around us where we think oh you know the soul is just kind of a, you know like a bird trapped in a cage and death is just where the the soul finally gets to flutter away but this reminds us that that the separation of the soul and body are not a natural thing we are still waiting something greater to happen paul here speaks of this separation of soul and body as uh, as a man being found naked Reminds us of Adam himself in the garden, left exposed to the elements, tries to cover himself, raises that question, as our soul passes into glory, will we be ultimately exposed, left standing before the judgment seat of Christ, having to give an account for everything that has been done in the body, as Paul will say here further in verse 10, which we'll look at next week. When we die, we will be found naked and exposed like Adam in the garden. The answer that Paul begins to tease out is no. The good news as we make it to the end of chapter 5 is that all who trust in Christ are clothed in Christ with His very righteousness. Isaiah himself speaks of the work of Christ in chapter 61 when he praises the Lord and says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels, that righteousness clothes us. It covers us. It covers our sin and nakedness. Uh, uh, just, when we speak of the work of justification, it's not simply the pardon of sins. It's also that now you have been clothed with Christ's own righteousness. And a clothing that will find its great hope, its great consummation on the last day when we will be raised to new life. Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 8 as the adoption as sons, the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul speaks of this groaning, this yearning, not for his soul to depart as much as it is for the resurrection from the dead. He speaks of this longing as a burden There's a certain irony here. Paul says he is weighed down. He is burdened even as he hopes to be clothed in something even weightier. So uh, I really love uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Great Divorce. Tries to get at some of this imagery uh, of a man who who dies and and basically takes a bus trip to heaven. And and as he he sees, um, it's not the perfect analogy but it is a, is a helpful literary metaphor that, that, that Lewis gives. And when he sees uh, folks in heaven, it's not that they're a bunch of kind of spirits, you know, playing harps on a cloud. It's actually that they're more substantial. The, 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 the grass actually begins to hurt uh, because they're, they're, their bodies are actually even weightier. They have to adjust to the weightiness of heaven. Uh, we think of heaven as something that is invisible, and right now it is something that is unseen to the naked eye. It is something, uh, you know, as we saw last week, it's like a, a man at sea looking for the coast just over the horizon. Uh, but the, but there's, a, there's, a, there's a visibility, there's a tangibleness uh, to 
to this new heavens and new earth. As again, the goal, Paul's hope, is that we will be clothed even further. In other words, Paul is longing not for death as much as he is for the resurrection from death. I think this ought to re- reorient and, and, to, and to shape our own present expectations. How is it that we think of uh, funerals and even old age? Think of the language we use, I can't wait to go to heaven. In one sense, that's perfectly legitimate. Again, Paul says over and over again, I long to be present with the Lord and absent with the body. But that, that's, uh, that's the midpoint. That's, a, that's, that's the rest stop along the way. That's not our final destination. Rather than thinking, I can't wait to get to heaven, perhaps it might be better to think along the lines, I can't wait for heaven to come to earth. I can't wait for us to be raised to new bodies where death will be no more. That great promise that no eye has seen, even the saints in heaven right now are awaiting the fulfillment of this great promise. It's a great joy that we will all experience together. The Christian ought not to long so much for death as much as he longs for resurrection. Where life swallows up death. And even as Paul contemplates the work of the resurrection, he cannot help but think of the work of the Spirit who through this new covenant accomplishes that work of resurrection on that last day. As it says here in verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing who, uh, is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. I cannot think of any other book in the New Testament that focuses so much on the work of the Spirit as first and second Corinthians. I encourage you to go home this week and even just read the reread the first five chapters of Second Corinthians. Pull out a notebook, piece of paper, or journal, and I'd like you to write down all the things that Paul says the Spirit does for the people of God. Chapter one Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who through his Spirit comforts us in all of our affliction who preserves us, who conforms us to Christ, who does this moral work of renewal, who by the work of Christ through the new covenant has lavished the Spirit in our hearts, who enables us to walk in God's ways, something uh, that we cannot do apart from the Spirit's work. It is the Spirit uh, who through Christ justifies us, who sanctifies us, and it is the Spirit who will glorify and raise us. Even now our Lord uses these present sorrows to prepare us for this eternal weight of glory. This eternal weight of being further clothed. You think our physical bodies now here are, per, are, 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 are tangible. Paul says it's like a tent. Compared to our resurrection body, it's like the difference between a tent and a brick house. It's something even more substantial. It is something indestructible. Paul says here, he prepares us for that eternal weight of glory, a heavenly dwelling, not speaking of mansions in the sky, but speaking of those reconstituted bodies where we have been perfected to look like our Savior inside and out. And Paul says we have that spirit now. The spirit has been given now as a down payment as the Spirit has begun that uh, internal process of renovation, think of the, the imagery that we had last week where or somebody's gutting the inside of a house and re, remodeling the inside of the house, even though the outside still looks shabby. 
The inside looks beautiful. That's what the Spirit is doing now. But the Spirit will not end there. There will come a day where the outside will be renovated as well. In chapter 4, Paul speaks of the Spirit's present work. And here in the first four or five verses of chapter 5, Paul speaks of the Spirit's future work. But the Spirit has been given now as a down payment that guarantees what will, in fact, happen. I know, uh, for, for those of you who are, who are married, or, or perhaps, uh, I don't know if there are any engaged couples out, out here, but, but think of the purpose of an engagement ring. What does it symbolize when you give uh, your, your girlfriend uh, the, the ring and she says yes? What does that engagement ring symbolize? It symbolizes the new life that awaits. It symbolizes that you belong to her and she belongs to you. It's a promise of life together, a life that still awaits. I think what's really fascinating in modern Greek, that word here uh, that we see for down payment is, is the same word used for, for engagement rings, even in modern Greek culture. And Paul here speaks of the Spirit as our engagement ring. It's the down payment, it's the promise that we belong to another the promise that we have one who is preparing a home for us. One that we have not yet seen, but will defy all of our greatest longings and expectations. The Spirit is your engagement ring to Christ. And that's why Paul says here in verse 6, this is why we are always of good courage. House might look dilapidated now. Body's aching. I'm always on the run. Can't find any rest but there's a more secure home that awaits. Tent has collapsed, having to sleep in the bed of my pickup truck. But there's a home that awaits, something even greater. Despite the repeated beatings, despite the stoning and the imprisonment, the loneliness and the heartache of rejection, the constant anxiety and the fear, the sickness and the death, Paul gives us two great things for us to set and attune our hearts to. The first is that great promise of the Spirit who indwells our hearts, that if you have put your hope in Christ, the Spirit is yours. And He is the engagement ring. He is the down payment. He is the guarantee that death will not have the last word. That even when we die, it is, it is not proof that death is won. And secondly, we find here that the Christian hope is not simply some disembodied bliss. But rather, the Christian hope is that of a day when our earthly tents will give way to a more permanent dwelling, that the, that the acorn, having shed its kernel, will blossom into the glorious and mighty oak. That this same body, though it dies, will one day at Christ's return be raised in power, not weakness, and be raised to a building which God has prepared as His own home, that we are being prepared as a home for the dwelling of the great and living God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for the great hope of the resurrection, and we ask that you would um, so orient ourselves that we would make preparation, even as the Spirit indwells us now, for the great inhabitation of God among his people on that last day, when our bodies will be raised indestructibly and corporately as the dwelling place of the Most High. Set our sights for heaven that we might seek to purify ourselves from the sins of this world 
and follow you in all that we do. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.